can turn to Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. If you have the Bible, if you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 877. So page 877. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. You can follow along as I read. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus continues, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, human pride, whenever we see it, it's an ugly thing. When we see human pride on display, it is, is an off-putting thing. Yesterday, I was watching uh, the final game of the Little League World Series. I, I played Little League growing up as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. and So when I have an opportunity, I like to watch, follow these games. And so yesterday was the final game of of the American bracket of the Little League World Series, and the two teams were playing. Now, I want to be gracious because these, these boys are 12. Okay, they're 12 year olds, so I want to be gracious, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what I saw. Okay, and this serves a point to introduce our, our passage. But, but this, the teams that were playing, there's a, a, a heavy favorite, okay, and then an underdog. There's this, this heavy favorite. They had, they had walked through, they hadn't lost the game all summer in every game they played, and there was one player on this team. He was the superstar. He was ahead above every other player. He was, he was strong. You, you would question if he's even 12. But he just he had dominated all the way through the tournament. He was the pitcher. Um, he, he, he performed well yesterday. But as the game uh, moved along, it got to the, the bottom of the sixth inning. And in Little League, that's the last chance. And it's a tie game. And this, this powerhouse team... Okay, I'm not naming them, okay, but this, this heavy favorite, they, they have the final chance. They're up in the bottom of the sixth. The game's tied. If they score, the game's over. And it just so happens that this superstar, okay, he comes up to bat with one man on base. Okay, so he has a chance to win the game. Again, everyone ex- is expecting, it's clear from a couple of cuts that he makes, that he is going for the home run. And it turns out this player, he strikes out. He strikes out, and what's worse, he strikes out looking at a called third strike that's right down the middle. He's clearly frustrated. He's upset. Visually, you can see he's upset. He he storms back to the dugout. The next batter gets a hit. The next batter hits the game winner. So this team, they win. They win the bottom of the six. It's it's what's called a walk-off. The winning run scores. And so as these 12-year-olds, they've just won the World Series, the Little League World Series, and they're going crazy. And so I'm watching them, and I notice one thing. The superstar's not with his team. 
He's not with his team. He, he comes out, okay, and, and he's, he's with them at first. They take a team picture. But then after this, this picture, this, this whole team, minus the superstar, they run to center field. They have this banner, Little League Champions, and it's just tradition. They run to center field, and they, they touch the statue out in center field. And I'm watching. I'm looking, well, where's, no, where, where's the superstar? And he's nowhere to be found. And I think, that, that's strange. As the team comes back, there's more pictures, and, and he's not there. And then you get a glimpse from the camera, the TV camera, you can see he's in the dugout. And I thought, what a proud young man. Now, I want to be gracious, but as I see that, that is just proud. This young man thinks, I would rather our team lose the game than me not be the hero. And that goes, that flies in the face of everything that literally claims to stand for. And so I saw that and I said, that's ugly. That's an ugly thing to see, but, but it is on display in, in many other examples. But in our passage this morning, we see a, a pride that's on display that's as, if not more, ugly than, than what I saw or seemed to see yesterday afternoon. Jesus tells this parable, and it's a contrastive parable. There's, there's these two examples, and one is an example of a proud man. And what's worse is his pride is a spiritual pride that relates to how he, as a person, relates to God, his maker. And spiritual pride is more than ugly, it is dangerous. And so Jesus gives us this example of, of spiritual pride, but, but he also gives a positive example of, of what spiritual humility looks like. And Jesus gives, this, this parable, gives us this parable in order to commend the humble man, to commend humility. And so Jesus tells, and, and this is certainly an example for us to be humble. Okay, that is certainly an application, but it, it's much deeper than that. If we, if we just leave this passage and say, okay, as followers of Jesus, we should be humble. If that's all we leave here with, I'm afraid we've missed the seriousness that, that accompanies this passage. Because Jesus tells this story, okay, this, this lays the foundation of establishing who is right with God. What type of person is accepted or, or justified by God. And so the, the stakes are much higher than simply, well, well, we should be humble. And let's take that and leave. No, it is a much more serious issue. And so Jesus in this parable establishes humility as the mark of someone who is justified by God. And so it is a, a, a serious matter. Now the main point of this passage, if you're taking notes, the outline, the, the, the purpose of the parable, the purpose of my sermon is simply to, to highlight this fact, this reality that God's mercy is the only hope for sinners. God's mercy is the only hope for sinners. It's the only hope for sinners to be right with Him. It's the only hope for sinners to be accepted by Him. It's the only hope for sinners to be justified before Him. And knowing that dependence creates a humility that marks the Christian life. Let's look at our passage. We'll I've broken it down into to three sections. The, the setting, verse 9. The characters and their prayers, verses 10 through 13. And then the conclusion, verse 14. So the setting, the characters, and the conclusion. Let's look first at verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now as we're reading through Gospels, as we're reading through, through Gospel accounts, it's helpful when Luke sets the stage for us like he does here. Okay, prior to this, this recording of Jesus' teaching, Luke says, okay, here's the reason he's telling this. 
It's like just before this passage, he, he says, Luke says, well, Jesus told this parable so that, so that the, the believers might not lose heart and might continue praying. So when Luke tells us the reason, it's important for us to, to note that. It's as if Luke is giving us a key as we seek to interpret the parable. So just at the outset, when he says Jesus, the audience is those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We should let that govern how we read, how we understand what comes. And so whatever it means, it has to fit in with the intended purpose of Jesus. Now we'll see in our, 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 the parable, there's a Pharisee who clearly fits that. Okay? But I don't think we have to limit the audience to Pharisees. Okay? It is a broader, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so Jesus is going to challenge those who trust in themselves that they're righteous. Okay? And not only is he going to challenge them, but, but he's in fact going to condemn those who trust in themselves that they're righteous. That's the conclusion that Jesus reaches. Is that to trust in yourself that you're righteous and treat others with contempt is to go home not right with God. Unjustified. And so he, verse 10, introduces the two characters. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And here's our two characters, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And when we, when we see Pharisee, right, we have a lot of baggage that we associate with the identity of this man, the Pharisee. When we read a Pharisee, we think brood of vipers, we think enemies of Jesus, we think whitewashed tombs, we think children of Satan, right? We know the Pharisees are bad guys. But as Jesus is telling the story, that is not the cultural perception regarding this man. Part of understanding the, the, the twist, the power of this parable, is understanding that the Pharisee is not perceived that way. In fact, as Jesus tells the story, the Pharisee, okay, he, would have, he would have been considered the righteous one. If anyone in the culture was righteous, it was the Pharisee. He was the law-abiding citizen, God's law-abiding Citizen, He was the righteous one. So as Jesus says that he's on his way up to the temple to pray, that's not surprising. That's what Pharisees do. He would have been perceived as the righteous one. And that's the Pharisee. But, but the other man, the contrasting man, is the tax collector. And so everything that's true of the Pharisee in the cultural perception is, is untrue of the tax collector. He is the opposite. Jesus uses these two extremes to make his point. And so this tax collector, he was unrighteous. As, as we come across the title tax collector, he's often grouped with, with these sinners, with the prostitutes and the adulterers. Okay, he was a sinner, an outcast. In fact, the tax collectors, they were traitors. They were employed by the Romans to take money from their fellow Jews. So they would pay a, pay a fee to Rome, and then they would, have, they would be over a region, they, and there was no limit, no protection. They could charge the citizens of that region whatever they wanted. And so they, they would get rich off of their own country people, country folk, their, their own people. They were traitors. And so the more that they charged them, the richer they got. And the richer they got, the more their fellow Jews hated them. And so there's this endless cycle of resentment. So the, the tax collector, he was the unrighteous. And so when Jesus says that these two men are going up to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, that would initially be somewhat shocking. The tax collector wouldn't, he wouldn't go up to the temple to pray. 
So Jesus tells the story. There's, there's two men. One perceived as righteous, the Pharisee. One perceived as unrighteous. Now, one, one clarification I will make at this point is that both men are unrighteous. Okay, we can't be confused. We can't be deceived. Both men are unrighteous, but Jesus is playing off this perception. One is perceived as righteous and one unrighteous. And so let's look at the Pharisee's prayer first. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So Jesus records, Jesus tells us what this man prays. And and notice that Jesus describes the, the stance or the posture of the prayer. And he also records the words or the prayer itself. Both of these categories are addressed. And with the Pharisee, little is said about his posture. The focus of the description is on his words. Do you see that? Just, just as they relate, there are many more words used to describe what the Pharisee says. We'll see that contrasted when we look at the tax collector. But he begins, God, I thank you. And as you're reading, that, that's not a bad start to a prayer. God, I thank you. That, that's actually a, a good beginning to a prayer. In fact, some of the Psalms begin, thank you, God. Right? This is a, a good start. And so the Pharisee starts that way. But the problem is that he never returns to God. His prayer glances at God, but then contemplates himself. Remember, remember the key, he's trusting in himself that he's righteous. And so he thanks God quickly, but then turns from a God-word-focused prayer to a self-focused prayer. Now, some people, when, when, they, when they look at this, they say, well, well, the Pharisee, this is actually, there's nothing wrong with what he prays. They say, well, he's, he's, he's grounding his difference in God's grace. And he says, well, God, you've made me different. So you say, there's, we can't read into there that there's error. I think the problem with that is that Jesus' point is that he's trusting in himself that he's righteous. He's already made his exam and he says, I thank you that I'm different. I do this, I do this, I do this. And so this Pharisee, his righteousness is based on what he doesn't do and what he does do. Okay, there's, there's no mention of God. It's all himself that makes the difference. God's mercy finds no place in the prayer of the Pharisee. Notice how he continues. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. So God, I'm here, here's, I'm, I have confidence before you as I pray because I don't do these things. My life isn't characterized by, by these things. The extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. It's as if he's saying, these, sins are, these men are sinners, and God, I am not like them. In case you've forgotten God, my resume is good. When compared with these men, you have no choice but to accept me. I am righteous. I can approach boldly, God, because of what I do not do. My life isn't taken up with these things. Now, being different... We would say that's not bad. It's not bad to be different. In fact, being separate from those whose lives are are characterized by sin is actually a good thing. That's good for for a Christian life to be different. But what's wrong is the implied source of that separation. Again, it's himself. I don't do this. I'm not like them. For the Pharisee, seeking God's mercy and forgiveness seems unnecessary. He is self-righteous. 
righteous. And he continues in verse 12. Okay, not only is it, I'm not like these, not, not only here's things I don't do, but, but here, God, let me, let me add, here are things that I do do. Verse 12, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, so both of these things are things that would have been common for Jews to do. They were commanded by God. Fasting and tithing would be right for them to do. They would be law-abiding things. They're both commanded by God, but, but his point is that he's going above and beyond what's required. The fasting, there's really only, only commanded one fast on the Day of Atonement. So he says, not only do I fast once a year, but twice a week, every week, twice I fast. Not only that, but I tithe all that I get. Remember when, when Jesus, earlier in, in, in Luke, he says, Woe to the Pharisees, you tithe rue and mint and all this. These herbs, they weren't required to be tithed upon. But the Pharisee says, I tithe on everything. Everything that I have, but everything that I buy, I give tithe on everything. Again, his point is, I go above and beyond what's required. Surely, God's accounting plan has provisions for extra credit, thinks the Pharisee. And so, I am earning extra credit. My merit meter is rising, God. And I'm just reminding you what I do for you. So that's the prayer of the Pharisee. And he prays convinced of his standing before God. He, he's confident. There's no question that God should receive him. It's worth noting that those listening, as Jesus, as the audience hears, they probably see this Pharisee as, as someone that they should aspire to be like. Man, if only I could be like that. That is godliness. At this point... In the story, they have no reason to question this man standing before God. They have no reason to question that. Of course, this man is justified. Of course, he has God's ear. But Jesus continues. He introduces us to the second character, the tax collector. Verse 13. But, here's the shift. The, the focus shifts and then the contrast begins. But the tax collector... Notice these two categories. Remember we said, we said his posture and his words. Notice how, how Jesus describes this man. Standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice that the focus is not on his words. His words are few. It's a simple prayer. God be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful. That's all he says. And instead, the focus, instead of focusing on the words, the focus of, of this character is on his posture. His posture. He is standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast. The tax collector is a picture of, of shame, of unworthiness, of brokenness, of humility. He is a sinner and he knows it. His approach to God is based on that reality. The reality of who He is. He is a sinner. And He knows it. True self-knowledge is the source of His supplication. God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Your mercy is my only hope. And notice His prayer. Be merciful to me. There's no commendation of Himself. There's no comparison. His eyes aren't on others around Him. There's no resume. It's simply an acknowledgement of who he was and what he needed. God, be merciful to me, 
the sinner. This man was a sinner and he knew it. Now, now we can't forget that this man was a sinner. This man was unrighteous. He was the audience would have probably agreed with how he prayed. That man, he needs God's mercy. He would probably be thinking as Jesus tells the story. If anyone needed God's mercy, it would be that tax collector. If anyone needs it, it's him. And so the problem wasn't that the Pharisee didn't think that God wasn't merciful. The problem is that the Pharisee didn't see himself as needing God's mercy. But the tax collector was was in need of it and he knew it. So verse 14 Jesus concludes, that's a, that's a short parable, and then, then verse 14 picks up Jesus' words again. And this, this conclusion okay, would have been shocking. This would have been a shocking conclusion. Jesus says, I tell you, you listening to me, you who trusting in yourselves that you're righteous and treating others with contempt, I tell you that this man, who's this man? The man he's just described the tax collector, the unrighteous one, this man went down to his house justified. This man went down to his house right with God. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house accepted by God. Now, now this conclusion in and of itself is shocking. They would have been shocked that Jesus would commend this man as being accepted by God. Jesus teaches he was dependent on God's mercy. And for him to go home justified says his prayer was answered. For him to go down to his house justified means that God had given him mercy. And that would have been shocking to the audience. But, now Jesus could have stopped there. He could have said, this man went down to his house justified. Therefore, those who humble themselves will be exalted. He could have ended it there, but he didn't. He didn't want his hearers to miss the point. And so he continues and he says, This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Rather. That word rather is shocking. Rather than the other. So not only is Jesus saying the tax collector goes down to his house justified, but he's also saying the Pharisee, the righteous one, he does not go home justified. All of his merits, all that he's done, it means nothing when he leaves that temple. One man goes home right with God. One man goes home not right with God. That's the conclusion that Jesus forces us to make. This is the great reversal of the gospel. Both men are sinners. Both men are in need of God's mercy. So what's the difference? Why does one go home justified and one go home not what makes the difference. The difference, and again, the point of this parable is that one man knows his need and casts himself wholly on the mercy of God. The tax collector knows his need for God's mercy, and there is plenty of room for God's mercy in his prayer. And he goes home justified as a recipient of God's mercy. But the, the other man... He doesn't know his need for God's mercy or what what is actually probably more likely, he he refuses to acknowledge his need. I think we could say he knows his need, 
But he refuses to acknowledge his need. And he goes home condemned, not justified, not right with God. And so Jesus teaches your sinnership is your only title to mercy. Knowing your need of mercy is the requirement for receiving mercy. And friends, this is the gospel message. This is the gospel truth. And so Christian, non-Christian, if you're here this morning, you fall in one of those two categories. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. This passage tells you you are dependent on God's mercy. You're dependent on God's mercy to be accepted by Him. And friends, God's mercy is not this vague picture. It's not this vague thing. No, God's mercy has been clearly portrayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's mercy has been put on display for all to see. And so friends, Christian, you, you know this. You know that you need God's mercy. But, but your need for God's mercy, as we sang in depth of mercy, our need is great, greater still. We don't outgrow our need for His mercy. And so Christian, be encouraged that God is merciful to you. You are redeemed to God through the work of Jesus Christ, through God's mercy. So be encouraged. Non-Christian, if you're here this morning, God is merciful. God is merciful, friend. God has sent His Son so that you might be accepted, that you might be right with God, that you might be justified. The work of Jesus on the cross, in my place condemned, He stood. Jesus paid the price so that you, through faith and repentance, might might be reconciled to God. Non-Christian, let me encourage you further. I think a clear teaching of this passage is that Christianity is not cannot be a religion of works righteousness. Perhaps a stumbling block for you coming to Christ is thinking, well, well, I can't can't act Christian. I can't do the Christian thing. Remember a conversation with a man in my office probably a year or so ago, and that was his thinking. I've got to get good enough, and then it won't be that hard to become a Christian. Maybe that's a stumbling block for you. Well, friend, You can't be right with God based on what you do. If that was true, the Pharisee would have gone home justified. But he doesn't. Friends, the gospel is a free offer for you, apart from anything you do. Your good works are nothing. It is Christ alone. It is what we call an alien righteousness. It is totally outside of yourself. And so non-Christian, I would urge you, Trust in Christ. Cast yourself on the mercy of God this morning. There's hope for you. There's hope in Christ. God has sent His Son so that you might be reconciled to Him. Friends, sinners are not made right with God by what sinners do. If you hear a Christian say that, they're probably not a Christian. Christians are made right only by what Christ has done. And so non-Christian, I urge you, trust in Christ. Now, another another application that that I want to, to press us towards is that as sinners dependent on God's mercy, there's no room for treating others with contempt. Notice that at the beginning of our passage, 
Those who he's telling this parable to are those who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. These two go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. If you're self-righteous, you treat others with contempt. And so Christian, if you're here this morning, right, we should be challenged by this. There's no room for contempt in the Christian life. Friends, we have to fight pride. It doesn't go away. Our our desire for self-righteousness doesn't go away. It is a trait of all the sons and daughters of Adam. We will carry within us until we die the desire to be credited right on what we do. That is not true. We must fight our self-righteousness and we do so by reminding ourselves of the truth of who we are and who God is. We seek to know ourselves and this self-knowledge is is how we fight self-righteousness. We have nothing to boast in. We boast in Christ and His cross and that is it. Why do you act, Paul would say, why do you act as though you, you have what you didn't, as though you re- did not receive what you have? And the answer is, you received it all. How can you boast? Christianity is not a religion that puffs up. There is no room for the proud Christian. This passage calls us to humble ourselves. Any pedestal that we would seek to stand on in order to look down in contempt on someone else is a pedestal that contradicts the gospel message. It is often said that the foot of the cross is level. Friends, we are all sinners in need of mercy. So friends, let us all aim to be tax collectors. If you're a young person here this morning, maybe maybe you're thinking, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Maybe you're a young adult. Maybe you're an older person and you're wondering, what am I going to do when I grow up? Well, friends, in in this sense, in light of this passage, we should all aim to be tax collectors. We should all aim to be tax collectors. We should all aim to be men and women who know our need for God's mercy because it is there that we find mercy. It is through Christ that we find mercy. Friends, God is merciful. And this is great news for sinners like us is great news. And so let us rejoice in this mercy. Let us take our seat beside the tax collector. Let's pray as we close. Father, it is, it is your grace that gives us eyes to see our need of your mercy. And so I pray, Father, that you would open eyes this morning to see that we are in need of mercy And I pray that you'd also then turn our eyes to Christ who has been made a sacrifice for us that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be accepted before you. This is great news. And so, Father, I thank you that you are merciful, that you delight to show mercy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.